1: Welcome back. Whenever one of my teachers uh, privileges us with his presence, I sit up a little straighter and pay a little bit more attention. Mayor Jolovitz is not only one of my teachers. I don't know if anyone who has taught more people more Middle East history than Mayor Jolovitz. I don't know anyone who knows more deeply about Middle East history uh, within a mile than Mayor Jolovitz. He is the past National Executive Director of the Zionist Organization of America, formerly with the Institute for Advanced Strategic and Political Studies. Uh, we are blessed to have him as a member of our local community. Has a great column uh, over at the Israel Israel National News, israelnationalnews.com, on the Saudi-Iranian concord, concord facts and fiction in the Middle East. We're going to talk to him a little bit about that. And also this question many of you have been asking me about, which is what is this whole fight about the judiciary in Israel about? Teacher, mayor, Mr. Jolovitz, welcome back to the show.
2: Seth, I am honored,
1: truly honored. Thank you. Honor is ours. Let's start with your column at Israel National News. The Muslim world has learned to exploit the West for its own benefit, while Israelis are proving that Jewish intelligence is a myth. I remember, Mayor, uh, before I let you go, uh, let you start here, I remember when uh, Charles Murray came out with a study on various cultures and their intelligence, and Michael Ledeen, a Sephardic Jew himself, said, you've got the Jewish thing all wrong. You think we have a higher intelligence? quotient. He said, you ever see how Israel runs itself? It would disprove your thesis in a trice.
2: <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Mayor. <laughs> yes, yes, I've often uh, I've often noted, particularly to the Jewish audiences, uh, the myth of Jewish intelligence. Yes,
1: yes, indeed. All right, take it away. What are we saying in Israel National News today, sir?
2: Okay, um, we have two threats uh, that Israel confronts, and I guess we're going to address both of them. One is external, the external is the ongoing threat of the Islamic Republic of Iran, and the fact that they are fast-forwarding their endeavor to establish a nuclear military capability. And uh, juxtaposed to that is uh, an internal struggle, which has everything to do with Israel's Supreme Court uh, and the fight over judicial reform. But I think you want to take the first. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. What's happened? What's happened lately? And it's caught a lot of the so-called. And I usually qualify by saying so called experts by surprise. is the fact that the Saudis, who have been uh, a long time enemies of Iran, and it actually works more strongly the other way Iran has been a bitter rival of the Saudis. Um, all of a sudden, there's some kind of rapprochement. They've gotten together, uh, theoretically at least. I don't believe that it's going to last long. Uh, and they've decided that they were no longer going to fight. Each other because they were concerned about their own external threats other than one to the other. And allow me, if I may, to explain that. The Saudis, who we have mistakenly believed are moderates, mind you, the anti American sentiment that one finds in the Madrasim in America, um, are 98% sponsored by the Saudis and their version of a Wahhabism, um, a very intense form of Islam, which basically says that there's no place. Uh, for anyone other than Islam in this world. Nonetheless, the Saudis have been much more, wa- much more moderate in their pronouncements over the last couple of years, and certainly even over the last couple of months, to the point where everyone was expecting some kind of Saudi-Israeli uh, reconciliation. I don't know that there's a we there, because they were never together in the first place. But nonetheless, all of a sudden, we are surprised to find out less than two weeks ago that the Saudis and the Iranians are going to get together. Now, the Iranian desire um, or the intent was always to defeat the Saudis, um, and the so-called experts were wrong. Why were the experts wrong? The experts were wrong because they, rather than follow the facts, followed their own narrative. The reason the Saudis and the Iranians have gotten together is quite simple. The Iranians have noticed that Israel is engaged in a number of exercises, military exercises, possibly in preparation, possibly or probably in preparation for some kind of strike against the Islamic Republic of Iran because of its advancement of its nuclear capability. Um, Iran is concerned. Israel is now in a position that it has to strike. Iran needs to somehow neutralize the Israeli threat. The Saudis had been very close to Israel because they considered Israel to be a game saver for them in combating Iran. Israel and the United States— Well, the Biden team, the foreign policy team, uh, which uh, specializes in appeasement, has disappointed the Saudis to such an extent that the Saudis no longer trust that the Americans will actually be there for them in the event of any kind of skirmish with the Iranians. So on two fronts, Israel with its problems at home, America not a reliable ally to anyone in the world, well, perhaps Iran, all of a sudden is a concern for the Saudis, and the Saudis said. We're going to go with Iran. What we're going to do is we're going to defuse the conflict. We don't know what Israel is going to do. We don't trust what Biden is going to do, which is nothing. And therefore, we are going to sit and break bread with Iran.
1: Mayor Jolovitz is our guest. Uh, Mayor, let me ask you this. Uh, The Saudi government, it appears, and as you articulate, has taken a good look into the eyes of the State Department and the foreign policy of this administration. Was there something to be said about, or was it window dressing, uh, the, the 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 slight reforms and nods to the West that we saw from, or we read reports of about Saudi Arabia over the years just prior to joe biden 's inauguration. There were all these reports about uh, the, the, the 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 new Saudi Arabia, if you will was that window dressing or was that real, and was there a growing um, a growing alliance? I know there was always an uneasy alliance with the United States and Saudi Arabia, but was there a growing one? between the United States and Saudi Arabia, or was it all so much window dressing, and yet we have pushed Saudi Arabia closer to Iran, uh, and nothing less than that?
2: Much of it, in fact, was window dressing. Uh, 60 minutes at an entire segment, I think, on Saudi Arabia, finally allowing women the right to drive. They were never allowed... To drive before. Well, what they didn't tell you was the footnote. The footnote was that they were allowed to drive as long as there was a man in the car, right. and they were allowed to drive as long as it was, the sun was shining. They couldn't drive at night. Uh-huh. So much of it was indeed window dressing. But the, the Saudis were concerned about the fact that the Biden administration, uh, because they had no such fear with the, uh, the previous administration. Uh, that the Biden administration was going to let them down. The Biden administration is as close to Iran, notwithstanding the fact that they've not yet come to terms on a second Iran nuke deal. They simply don't trust Joe Biden, Anthony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, and especially Robert Malley. They don't trust them. And because they don't trust them, they think that they might indeed be attacked by Iran. Therefore, they need to somehow get closer to Iran. As far as Israel is concerned, the IAEA, The International Atomic Energy Agency announced just three weeks ago that the Islamic Republic of Iran is on the threshold of developing a nuclear military capability, and therefore Israel needed to act. Both countries were concerned about um, what was happening outside of each of those respective countries and decided we're going to get together for the moment. And I want to tell you, history shows us that any arrangement that one finds, any so-called peace arrangements between Arab nations, Muslim nations, because in this case Iran is not an Arab nation, it's a Muslim nation, they don't last very Uh, long. You
1: you had mentioned that, and I wrote a note when you said that initially. I wanted to ask you about that. History doesn't teach that these things do last very long, do they? They're very convenient, they're very personality driven, sometimes they're even uh, very transactionally driven, but they don't tend to be durable, do they?
2: They don't, and especially in this case, Seth. And the reason is because both those nations lay claim to being the representatives, the true representatives of Islam right. and its destiny. Right. Uh, and that doesn't work. Keep in mind, for the audience, uh, Iran is, we're talking about a Shiite, and we're talking about the Sunnis coming from the Saudis, right. even though it was a the, the Wahhabi uh, element of it. But nonetheless, these are not people who see eye to eye even under the banner of Islam.
1: It's also true, by the way, for people that may have shocked or raised eyebrows over this uh, new or recently developing alliance, it's also true that the notion that the Shia and the Sunni will never work together is a myth. They will work together. There has been Shia and Al-Qaeda cooperation. There has been Shia and ISIS uh, uh, cooperation. It is a myth that they hate each other so much that they would never even work together, right? Right.
2: In most cases, when they've operated together, it's because of that, ad, of, of that maxim, the enemy of yeah. my enemy is my friend. Yeah. Um, the many times that they have, in fact, cooperated um, basically comes down to their hatred for Israel. Yeah. Or uh, the United the, States,
1: I would imagine, too, right, in the case of... Alfred, Palestinian right. Authority and Hamas right.
2: are at war with each other, right. but they have one thing in concert, yeah. the eradication of the State of Israel.
1: You're uh, you're such a um, gifted uh, radio guest because you're such a gifted radio host. You often host uh, the Middle East Forum here here on Sundays. That you know when I have to take a quick break. So thank you for that, Mayor. Let me take a quick commercial break, <laughs> and you. we'll pick up on that when we come right back. Mayor Jolovitz is our guest. Don't go A lot more. a Middle East historian. He is the past National Executive Director of the Zionist Organization of America, formerly with the Institute for Advanced Strategic and Political Studies. He is a teacher here in the Valley, sometimes host of Middle East uh, Radio Forum, heard here on Sundays on this station at noon. Guest host, I should say. He is a friend and teacher of mine as well. We're talking about his column, Israel National News, IsraelNationalNews.com, about the Saudi-Iranian Concord. Mayor, uh, Jolovitz, assuming for the minute, arguendo, that there is something that sticks here between Iran and Saudi Arabia going forward. Perhaps they find a financial agreement within this, um, with this uh, within this relationship that wants them to stick it out a little bit more. Uh, the United States' presence in uh, reception, in ability to maneuver in and throughout the Middle East – It becomes ever darker uh, the greater that this concord lasts, does it not? I mean, the Middle East being as nettlesome as it is, the agreement between these two um, makes it so much the worse for us, doesn't it?
2: Absolutely. In fact, allow me to add uh, this also. Uh, One should uh, understand that the Saudis are no friend of the West, specifically the United States. And while the Saudis are no friend of the United States, the Iranians are the enemy of the of the united okay, states the and i specifically thing. bring that nuance yeah. to the fore yeah. uh the saudis are able to manage some kind of uh, understanding with the united states uh each with a quid pro quo an expected quid pro quo the biden administration however has let everybody down i don't know of anyone that they've not let down other than the iranians actually um so what they have to do is they've got to decide how long, they would, how long they want to continue to play this game. And understand this also. As certain as the sunrise, if there's a new administration that sits in Washington um, in 2025, uh, we're going to see a, a radical change as far as both the Saudis and the Iranians. What they're doing is they're playing the deck of cards that are uh, the hand of cards that they were uh, served by this administration what we see now is in response to what america is or isn't doing in the middle east
1: yeah that's right uh this this is in this is what happens when you throw a car driving 65 miles per hour and down on the clutch and throw it into reverse that's what the biden administration did for no real good reason that i can tell except that it was just uh, the playbook of the opposite of the previous administration and this is what they this is what they've cost us they've cost us a not friend and an enemy to a lie and a lie against our interests fair enough
2: and yeah absolutely true
1: Absolutely true, Mayor. I get a lot of questions. Uh, if I can just shift a little bit to the internals over in, in Israel, I get a lot of questions about the um, the commotion over the judicial reform uh, protests and goings on there. Can you do a one hundred and one for us on that? What? Sure. What? How? How should we be thinking about that?
2: Sure. Um, the internal issue is this: there's the refusal on the part of the Israeli left to accept the results of the November 1st, 2022 election. They simply refused to accept the, the results because they lost. Uh, a reminder, uh, Israel, is, um, Israel elected on November 1st a right-leaning coalition government with 64 Knesset seats. That's 64 out of 120, which is enough to govern. In fact, it's more seats than the previous government, which didn't last long, which was left-leaning, the government of Naftali Bennett, Yair Lapid. That government, which no longer (laughs) is in power, they are in opposition now. They refuse to recognize the results of democracy. Democratically, there was an overwhelming success for the Bibi Netanyahu led coalition government. When you take out the 511,000 votes which were um, uh, gotten by the Arabs, uh, the Arab parties that ran in Israel, there was a decided victory for the right leaning coalition as opposed to that on the left, which sits in opposition today. But for 11 weeks, we've seen demonstrations against the government, unprecedented. I mean, these... um What we're seeing in Israel is a civil unrest, which is, in fact, unprecedented. Now, there were two previous episodes in Israeli history where we saw Israelis, by the large numbers, take to the streets. The first, and long forgotten, was in 1952 and 1953, when there were demonstrations against the matter of Israel uh, receiving German reparations. It was considered by many people in Israel, many of them Holocaust survivors at the time. Israel was only four years old. Um, They considered it blood money, and a lot of people in Israel said we will not take reparations because the reparations, in in essence, allows the Germans to breathe easily and say, okay, we've been forgiven. The second time that we saw large demonstrations in the streets uh, of Israel was when, in August of 2005, Israel withdrew the unilateral disengagement, they called it, Israel withdrew from Gaza. Not a single soldier, not a single Jewish resident was left in Gaza. It was turned over to the Arabs, and of course, the response was 22,000 rockets and missiles which had fallen in Israel. But there were demonstrations on the part of Israelis against the government at the time because there were 24 communities, Jewish communities in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip, which were in fact dismantled in order to somehow placate. The murderers of Jewish children. This, however, is the largest we've ever seen. We've never seen anything like it. And in essence, if one wants to be really honest about it, what we have is a um, a leftist opposition, which simply says we aren't going to recognize the government that was elected democratically in November, and we're going to protest in the streets, as they have for 11 weeks now, to delegitimize the government completely delegitimize it. And the main issue, as you mentioned, was judicial reform. What they've done is they've jumped on this notion of judicial reform because it's the one thing that the right wing or the right leading government of Israel wants to correct. And if I have a minute or two I'll explain yeah. why they want to yeah. attack that.
1: Take a minute or two Israel on that. Yeah, and then we can do another segment. No yeah. yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm Okay, Israel
2: has no constitution. Right. Instead of a constitution and A democracy without a constitution can sometimes lead to problems. So instead, Israel has what they call basic laws, which are basically almost amendments to a constitution which doesn't exist. Now, Israel, like other democracies, like the United States, has three branches. They've got an executive, which is actually the prime minister, they've got a legislative, which is the Knesset, and they have the Supreme Court. The checks and balances are supposed to work, and they don't. And the reason they don't work is because of the Supreme Court. In Israel, the Supreme Court, uh, court, made up of 15 members, is heavily left, a very strong, far-left political persuasion. Uh, They appoint their own successors. They appoint their own successors, which means it will always be left. The Arabs call uh, call the Supreme Court in Israel our best friend. Mm There's another issue, and this is the one that judicial reform is intended to correct. The Supreme Court, as it is constituted now, can override any legislation by the Knesset. They can simply reject or nullify any law that's passed. Now, where it's misunderstood in the Western world is this hasn't always been the case. This began in 1992 with one of the basic laws that I mentioned. Aharon Barak, a brilliant man and a strong leftist, still alive, retired, was a justice before he was the president of the Supreme Court. And what he did is he initiated a basic law, and then another to to strengthen that, which basically said that the Supreme Court could basically override legislation, override legislation, which basically said that they were the most powerful body doing political work in Israel.
1: Let me pause you on that. Yeah, let The coalition
2: government that yeah, I me... spoke about, that was elected on November 1st, said no, not on our watch. L- and judicial reform is simply a move on the part of the Bibi Netanyahu government, led by Yeriv Levin, who is its justice minister, to introduce what we call judicial reform to end what they call judicial tyranny of the Supreme Court. Let
1: me pause you on that. Let me pick up on that on the next segment. This is beginning to ring familiar, probably, to a lot of American ears about the collapse of the separation of powers. We'll be right back with more from Mayor Jolovitz. Middle Eastern expert and historian Mayor Jolovitz is our guest. He is uh, discussing with us the uh, on Israel over judicial reform. Mayor, I was getting some emails during the break saying they had no idea, people had no idea how bad the judicial system in Israel was, and I'm jokingly, somewhat jokingly, saying it's almost as bad as ours. But that is what the point is that they're going through right now, isn't it? It is to restore some notion, some sense of a separation of powers and an independence between the three branches of government that has collapsed in too many cases, as we all know, here as well, right?
2: Right. The misunderstanding, particularly among uh, uh, those in the Western world who ostensibly support Israel, is this. Uh, They don't understand that the Supreme Court, what they said was that they— Their attitude is that the Bibi Netanyahu Netanyahu government is actually destroying democracy when it's actually trying to restore democracy. Prior to 1992, what judicial reform will, when it is accomplished, and it will be, what it will bring is it'll bring Israel back to the pre-1992 days when the Supreme Court usurped powers which weren't inherently theirs. Mm-hmm. Now, to bring up the election again, the, the election of November 1st, there were 2.34 million Israelis who voted for this coalition government, knowing that judicial reform was part of what they planned to do. Uh-huh. The numbers who voted for the opposition are much less. But the opposition, Saul Alinsky type, uh, understood the lessons of, of, uh, well, making noise. They understood, and they made a, they've made a lot of noise. Eleven weeks in a row, demonstrations are growing. And if you look at the voices, well, there are two parties, for example, that are fighting uh, against the Bibi Netanyahu government. These are parties, leftist parties in Israel, that didn't even pass the threshold, which is 3.25% in the last election. In other words, the population of Israel didn't even vote them into the into the Knesset, and yet their spokesmen are some of the leading spokesmen against this government. We have former Prime Ministers Ehud Barak, who basically likened Bibi Netanyahu to Hitler. We have Ehud Ulmer, who called for bloodshed in the streets. Ulmer, who spent time in prison, by the way. We have former Defense Minister Benny Gantz, who basically called for civil unrest. We have Tel Aviv Mayor Ron Hudai who basically came out and said that only with violence will this government capitulate. This is a government which was democratically elected. And yet these people are throwing this bloodshed uh, around in order to do what? In order to get some of the people in the, the coalition which serves today to somehow begin to question whether or not it was worth it. And a few have. And that is a very disturbing thing. I mentioned of the Supreme Court because people don't understand exactly the powers that have been usurped by the Supreme Court. Not only, as I mentioned before, does the Supreme Court have a right to look at a law in Israel which was passed by a majority of the Knesset, however large that majority might be, it could be overwhelming but they have a right to say, no, we nullify it. Not only that, and this is the insanity which no other democratic nation in the world would allow, the Supreme Court has a right to look at issues which are being discussed by the Knesset and say, don't bother discussing them because if you should pass a law, we're going to nullify it when you do such. It's a preemptive effort to actually dictate who sets the law in Israel. There's a... um, Um, a Jerusalem-based think tank, the Kohelet Policy Forum, wonderful people, even they are beginning to get nervous because they said we didn't anticipate such animosity in the streets. They've come out with tremendous position papers in which they explain what's wrong with the Supreme Court today. Um, there are principles, there are four issues by which the Supreme Court can base its judgment, and these are amorphous, nebulous terms, Mm -hmm. principles of democracy, reasonableness, Mm -hmm. enlightened opinion, and purposeful interpretation. Mm -hmm. Let me take one of them, reasonableness. The Supreme Court in Israel today has a right to say about a law which is passed democratically by a majority of the Knesset, Israel's parliament, and say it doesn't sound reasonable to us, Mm -hmm. and on the virtue of reasonableness, as they called it, they override it. It's insane. It's capriciousness.
1: Total caprice. Absolutely. Right. Well, we're beginning to become very familiar with that very understanding here, too. It's good that someone is doing something about it or trying to do something about it. Maybe we can remodel ourselves after the reforms they do there in an ironic sense. huh? (laughs) Mayor Jolovitz, thank you so much for your time, your scholarship, your friendship. Appreciate you so very, very much. A privilege. Thank you so much. Thank you. I am Seth Leipsin, six zero two fifty eighty nine sixty. We'll be right back. If I can uh, do a little bit of a of a callback to what I was saying and some of the stuff I was saying in my monologue uh, in the previous hour, um, I don't know if you, if you're also like me, you're getting a lot of people uh, speaking about just what odd times these are, uh, very challenging. For a lot of people outside just economic issues, um, I've been given some talks around town where I kind of refer back to Paul Harvey's notion of this being a testing time, an old phrase of his from a 1960 broadcast. And it seems like, um, how would I describe what we're all kind of in? We're the kindest and the most charitable and the people just doing the right thing are getting hit with what uh, Herman Melville called the universal thump. Uh, He put it in Moby Dick. The universal thump gets passed around, and the challenge is, I guess, if I can quote another author, Rudyard Kipling, is about whether we can keep our heads when all about us are losing theirs and blaming it on you. This is part of the adult mental health crisis that's taking place as well. Well, I was talking about uh, the testing time, and it dawned on me um, Maybe it'd be good to hear a little bit of that old wisdom from old Paul Harvey. Um, I pulled a section from it that I think you guys just might like. And um, if you'll bear with me, I think you'll find it's kind of a message. He gave this uh, in 1960. I think it's a message we could all use right now. He's talking about what it is that made us so special in the first place as a country. May I, can I do this, Bill? I can play a little Paul Harvey, can't I?
3: Let us determine first, the source of our strength. How come, after thousands of years of experiment, our new nation has come so far so fast? All this in less than 200 years. What is the secret of our success? Well, I think it had to do with a basic American's creed. Perhaps it never passed the pioneer's lips in this form, but if it had, I think he would have said something like this. I believe in my God, in my country, and in myself. I know that sounds like a trite too simple thing to say, and yet it's a rare man today who will dare to stand up and say, I believe in my God and my country and in myself and in that order. When the early American pioneer first turned his eyes toward the West, there were only Indian trails or traces as they were called for him to follow through the wilderness. Do you know today you can roller skate from Miami to Seattle, from San Diego to Plymouth Rock? In this little bitty instant as historical time is measured our seven percent of the earth's population has come to possess more than half of all the world's good things how come well sir when that early pioneer turned his eyes toward the west he didn't demand that somebody else look after him he didn't demand a free education he didn't demand a guaranteed rocking chair at eventide he didn't demand that somebody else take care of him if he got ill or got old there was an old-fashioned philosophy in those days that a man was supposed to provide for his own and for his own future. He didn't demand a maximum amount of money for a minimum amount of work. Nor did he expect pay for no work at all. Come to think of it, he didn't demand anything. That hard-handed pioneer just looked out there at the rolling plains, stretching away to the tall green mountains, and then lifted his eyes to the blue skies and said, thank you, God. Now I can take it from here. That spirit isn't dead in our country. It's dormant. It's been discredited in some circles, driven underground, but it isn't dead. It's just that a few seasons ago, politicians baiting their hooks with free barbecue and trading a Ponzi promise for votes began telling us, we don't want opportunity anymore, we want security. We don't want opportunity, they said. We want security. They said it so often, we came to believe them. We wanted security. And they gave us chains. And we were secure. Suddenly, with our constitutional guarantees depleted, with our national character eroding away, with our tax laws penalizing those who dare to prosper, with workers concentrating on how little they can get by with instead of how much they can produce, suddenly we looked overhead one day to discover that the first tin moon in space was a Russian accomplishment, that free men dragging their feet had been outdistanced by slave workers dragging their chains, and we were sore afraid. But as with the nuclear bomb, perhaps this was a disguised blessing, too. Maybe a dramatic accomplishment by this Cold War adversary was necessary to get us off our dead centers and back to work again. If we can revive in ourselves, then in our youth, something of that basic American's creed, the horizon has never, ever been so limitless. For man stands now on the threshold of his highest adventure of all, his first faltering footsteps into space. Twenty years from today, half of the products you will be using in your everyday living aren't even in the dictionary yet. We've got it made. If we just keep on keeping on, we've got it made. And if we don't, we will follow those other great nation states of history into the graveyard of ignominious oblivion. History promises only this for certain. We will get exactly what we deserve.
1: Isn't that message trenchant now? Isn't that message important now? You know, we sometimes jape around here a little bit the line from Captain America that we could use a little old-fashioned right now. I guess it's Phil Coulson who says it to Captain America, when he worries about the uniform being a little old-fashioned, we could use a little old-fashioned right now. Think about what Paul Harvey was warning about in 1960. Think about what he was warning about with regard to us not wanting opportunity any more, but wanting security. We don't want opportunity. They said we want security, and they said it so often we came to believe them. We wanted security, and they gave us change and chains, and we were secure. that ring a little bit familiar to you? Does it ring familiar to you about the pioneer spirit that said, I'll take it from here, not I need the government to help me take it from here? Get the government out of the way, and we'll take it from here. We look back and we read these wonderful speeches or you hear the interview I did with Joe Wiegand last uh, Friday talking about the moral and patriotic instruction from the likes of Theodore Roosevelt where you go back and you quote the speeches about rugged individualism from the 1920s and 30s and you think that this is Poetry, but it's more than just poetry. It's a political philosophy that got us to a place of such prosperity that we ended up at seemingly the end of the road and just looked around and shrugged our shoulders and decided, well, we've done enough. We've done enough. So when friends tell me, when I look back at, you know, that rugged nation that we used to be, the nation that not so long ago said, let's roll the nation that not so long ago hated being called a sick country or a nation of sick people. And they tell me we were a different country then. Yes, we were a different country then in some respects because Americans are always renewing, right? We're always bearing new births and bearing old people. We're always self-renewing. But that is the task, isn't it, self-renewal? The self-renewal needs to come rather quickly, I think. I don't think we have a lot of time left. It is, as Paul Harvey said, best described as a testing time.
0: Are the stars and stripes a little old-fashioned? Everything that's happening, the things that are about to come to light, people might just
2: need a little old-fashioned.
1: How do you think the Biden administration is handling the economy with banks falling and stock market volatility and possibly a recession coming? What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed? A portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose, and no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. It's a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate where your interest is compounded daily. You're paid monthly and there are no fees. Talk to my friends at Y-Refi. They're local. You can visit with them. I know them well. They're trustworthy and honest. And you won't get a sales pitch. They leave that up to Larry Elder and me. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm. You can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then com, or call 888-Y-REFI-34, 888-Y-REFI-34. John Hinderocker is pointing out that Piers Morgan has an in-depth interview with Ron DeSantis that's going to air on Thursday. And uh, portions of it have been uh, released. Looks like Ron DeSantis is now taking the gloves off and punching at Donald Trump. You never know what foibles are going to bring down a hero. It is a far, it is a famous in Greek lore that it is the foible that can bring down men of great heroic seeming impermeability. And... Um, Ron is swinging for the fences, it looks like, in this interview with Piers Morgan. It's going to be really interesting now. And uh, I agree with John. I think we can say the race for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination begins this week. Don't go away. A lot more coming up. We'll be right back.